0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do.
1: All right, good morning, Nina. How are you doing today?
0: Thanks, Matt. How wonderful, <laughs>
1: wonderful. It plays in the morning. If you've you've tried to trick me because we're recording it in the afternoon, and that's why you had a confused face and I've thrown you with it oh my God. Hey, Well it's 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 10:30 when this comes out, but anyway. <laughs> Another week of you and I while Andrew's away. So good fun for you and I and, and he can enjoy seeing his tropical paradise. So it's a nice change. It's,
0: yeah, for, oh, that, for, for
1: for him and uh, ah, there you go, know, yeah. she saved it there, Andrew. Remember that one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we've got a lot of stuff to get through today again. So, uh, Nina, I'll go to you for the uh, the first bit of news this week.
0: Yeah, so really interesting that we've had the first test of the anti-pay secrecy clauses, so legislation, and so it involved a casual employee I think kind of a bookstore, yep. and she had raised that she was being paid incorrectly. So she was being paid as a level one; she should have been paid as a level three. Mm-hmm. And basically, they fixed it, but then they stopped giving her shifts and basically dismissed her when mm-hmm. she told everyone else that she received this back payment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she's brought a general protections claim because they've taken adverse action against her for her workplace right to disclose the information. That's right. So. We don't yet know what's going to happen, but it's just a good reminder to employees out there that this legislation is now in effect. And so the workplace rights are employees are allowed to disclose their pay and any relevant information that would form part of...
1: Yeah, what's necessary to be able to calculate. Yeah, that's right. So the hours of work.
0: Yeah, and they can ask other employees of it. So you cannot take adverse action against them on that basis.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, look, it's an interesting test. This talks about back pay, perhaps, query about how that falls under the, the term of remuneration, which isn't defined under the Act, mm. and the more sort of broader catch-all of is it one of the things that you need, can ask yeah. about to be able to discern the pay. So I think it would be a really interesting direction, but, you know, on, on what we know of the facts so far, not looking so good
0: no, given the timing in. <laughs>
1: of, the, of the termination, yeah. absolutely.
0: Okay, so next case. This one is a rarity because the employers actually wanted this. Mm-hmm. Case. So, this case involved one of the leading hands for a meat processing business. They were wrapping one of the pallets and loadout, walked back into the path of a reversing forklift. Most importantly, the driver of the forklift was unlicensed, so Mm -hmm. he didn't have a high-risk licence, which we all know is a requirement for forklift driving. Safe Work New South Wales brought a case that the employer was liable because there seemed to be a practice that employees, this was a labour employee, were driving unlicensed and he had been directed to do so by the leading hand. They said there should have been controls in place, such as a proper supervision system, penalty system and a whole raft of really complicated things. And the employer stood their ground and said, well, no, we actually do have a very good system. And none of the controls that you have said would have prevented the accident from happening because the issue was not the system itself but was the fact that these leading hands were acting outside of the system Mm. and were acting inappropriately without our knowledge Mm. because they had a system where they did very clear inductions, you know, focused training, they had random inspections, people were regularly disciplined if they broke the rule and it was a well-known rule. Like Mm. in evidence, the leading hands admitted they had made the mistake. Not only that, Safe Work, I think six weeks before the incident, had actually signed off on this incident, it has being like, of there's nothing else you can do. Mm. So, don't know why Safe Work decided to bring the claim. No oversight maybe. Hey? Yeah, mm. but, yep, so they were found not liable and the leading hands were acting outside of their authority, but I would still say wash this face because I think Safe
1: Work will try to appeal it, mm. so we'll see, but...
0: Nice to get a win for for once. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's something that employers are always fearful of, isn't it, in those circumstances where they've got employees who are acting outside of the systems and fearful that that means prosecution is possible. And yes, it was, but then here's the successful. Yeah, I think it's
0: just a good reminder to employers that the test is what is reasonably practical. And if you have the system in place, you know, you're not condoning bad behaviour, you have evidence that you're enforcing the system, then, even if something goes wrong and it's out of your control, you've got that as a defense and you will not be found liable.
1: Yeah, yeah, awesome. Fantastic.
0: All right. So, this one is a workers' comp one and something that I think a lot of employees would come across quite frequently. So, facts are not super different. Uh, it was an employee who had a psychiatric claim. I think they had depression or something like that. Was unable to return to work for a significant period of time. The employer issued them with a show call, saying, "Look, we don't think you're fit to return to work." The employee asked for the first extension to get more medical evidence. They granted it, but then kept asking for more and more extensions mm. of time, and the employer refused. And so the employee brought a claim with was it the IR commission?
1: Yeah, the industrial relations. Yeah, the industrial relations, industrial the relations Class, commission.
0: Yeah. And the National Relations Commission found that while it was necessary for an employer to work and act reasonably with the employee, It was not reasonable to have all these successive requests for extensions of time because the employee had no evidence that there was any fitness for mm, work. Mm. And none of the correspondents requesting extension of time said, you know, I think I'm actually fit for work, so mm. let me get more time to get this information. Mm. Like, had that been the case, that would have made a difference. But it's not up to the employer, to have to keep this job open indefinitely. Yeah, and I think we get asked
1: this one a lot, don't we, when an employee becomes injured or is long-term ill or injured about, oh, what do I, you know, do I just have to keep accommodating, keep accommodating, keep accommodating? And look, each circumstance is very different The context is very different for individual employees. But it's a great reminder that, you know, it's not an indefinite obligation, you know, and here very reasonable to provide that extension of time, proper basis to provide it. But with that further extension a requested without any, you know, justifiable reason from the employer, yeah. that's where the court slash commissions are likely look a little bit more favourable on yeah. a refusal of those. So yeah, yeah don't refuse the reasonable no. ones, but, you know, it doesn't mean you have to accept the unreasonable
0: And ones. remember, like, if they're saying, look, we need more time because we, can't, we don't feel well enough to attend in person, you have the option of asking for a written response. Mm. That's always available to you to, and it is reasonable. Just don't make it your first go-to.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, look, at a really great uh, example of the very rarely used uh, serious contravention provisions here. So, might recall their provisions that came in in 2020 to impose 10 times the normal penalty level for companies and for individuals um, on the basis that the breaches were knowing and systemic breaches by those businesses and individuals and they've sort of been really used since they've come in I think because the Fair Work Ombudsman in particular has been looking for opportunities to bring cases yeah. and yeah. make claims for serious contraventions where it is very very clear cut and this particular case was a real great example of sort of really knowing and systemic breaches of the Fair Work Act so it involved a uh, an operator of two Indian restaurants. They had two individuals on temporary visas. And effectively I think if you were to put into chat GPT, can you explain the worst possible <laughs> breaches of the Fair Work Act? That's exactly what happened here. Cashback schemes, making the employees pay tax, threatening their their visas all the time, you know, directly underpaying them creating a system to make it look like that wasn't happening, yeah, evidence. You know, lying to the ombudsman every sort of possible thing. Like, and did, 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 exactly, <laughs> exactly. And the court ultimately found in the decision last year on liability that the company and its director had engaged in 10 separate breaches of the Fair Work Act. Wow. And in this particular decision found that seven of the 10 for the company were serious contraventions and three of the 10 for the director and when, they, when the court looks at the contraventions, it looks at two particular aspects. It looks at general deterrence and specific deterrence. So the specific deterrence is about the particular individual slash business. And here the court was inclined to say, look, you know, for specific deterrence, I'd only actually impose a modest penalty because the individual business had ceased operating and the actual director led evidence that they were now themselves employed as a casual cook working at other places. But the judge and the court here was very scathing in particular of the behaviour and said, "Well, there's a real need for that second category, general deterrence, because these are the sorts of behaviours, these are the sorts of serious breaches that warrant a much more significant imposition of penalty." And ultimately issued penalties of $150,000 to the business and almost $100, sorry, $50,000, excuse me, for the director. Now, on top of, then, orders for uh, back payments of almost $100,000 for one of the employees and $90,000 for the other. Now, the, the unfortunate part of this, something that was identified by the, uh, the lawyers, the actual individual applicants, was these sorts of circumstances, although those penalties have been issued... The likelihood of that money actually ever making it back through in any way, shape, or form to the individual employees was low oh. because of the financial capacity of the now non operational business
0: oh, and the director. Mind. So, uh,
1: but it's again, it's a great example of, you know, a reminder just don't do dodgy stuff. Like, I'm as okay <laughs> sort of simplistic <laughs> and flippant as that sounds, you know these provisions and these decisions that we're slowly getting around them are intended to show to you, don't engage in these serious breaches. So just another reminder not to uh, engage in poor behaviour and breaching the Act. So the last news item for the day, we've got the sort of first test now in a in, in, in modified sense of the intractable, intractable bargaining declaration. So you might recall in the Enterprise Agreement space, These are the provisions that now allow, under the Secure Jobs Better Pay Amendments, allow the Fair Work Commission, in very specific circumstances of bargaining for a new enterprise agreement where it's been more than nine months, they've tried to conciliate, there's no reasonable prospect of an agreement being reached and in the overall circumstances it's reasonable to do so, to effectively make an order for the Commission to come in and stand in the shoes of the employees and the employer and decide what the enterprise agreement shall be. So pretty significant changes, you know, as we've discussed before, harkening back Mm -hmm. to a a previous time of sort of industrial relations in the country. But what we've had here is it's uh, a sort of dispute that exists between the union members and the employer where the, the bargaining and the protected industrial action that sits alongside that bargaining has been going for quite a long period of time, well over that nine-month period, and the employer sought an order from the Fair Work Commission, which it ought, under provisions that already existed in the Fair Work Act, to seek a stay of that protected industrial action oh. so that it could make an, order, an application for an intractable bargaining order wow. to the Fair Work Commission. So there are provisions that allow the Commission to really stop protected industrial action from happening Now, it's intended, these provisions, when you look at them, and this is what the union argued and what the Fair Work Commission ultimately accepted, that that stopping a protected industrial action is not meant to be an interim step so that an employer or an employer union can seek a different order, which is what the employer was trying to do here with the intractable bargaining. So the Commission said, we're not going to order, we're not going to allow you to seek an order to stop industrial action just because you want to make an application for an order for an intractable bargaining order. So what is an interesting thing is we're already starting to see some real jurisprudence up here around these provisions that say these really are meant to be dealt with as a separate sort of last resort provision in this space. So it will be really interesting and it will be interesting to continue to look and see what happens over the coming uh, weeks and months around this space. So we're (laughs) looking at post-employment restraints today and there's been some more recent sort of attention around this yeah, and it's a bit of attention around this, I think, because we've got some sort of starting to hear some noise from a couple of different stakeholders about what this might look like in terms of how post-employment restraints affect the economy in a more broader sense mm. in terms of productivity and competition. But to take it back to first principles, to remind everyone again, what are we talking about when we talk about post-employment restraints? They're contractual provisions in employment contracts where an employer seeks to prevent an employee after employment from engaging in particular activities. Common law is what mainly deals with this, except if you're in New South Wales, and the rule is is that by default, these sorts of provisions are unenforceable as an unlawful restraint Which of trade. don't
0: actually know. No, that's yeah. right. They
1: they start on that basis, yeah. and an employer needs to demonstrate that they are reasonable mm-hmm. by looking at two real main aspects. One is that the employer has a legitimate interest to protect yeah. in imposing that restraint, and that the restraint is no wider than is reasonably necessary to protect that legitimate interest. Legitimate interests, often very easy to establish. Confidential, employees' access to confidential information. Client. Yeah, IP. Yeah, yeah, client contacts. They've got strong involvement in client relationships and sort of the ability of that person to sort of influence staff with that employer. That's very easy. More often than not, the dispute is really around the no wider than reasonably necessary. We know the classic three categories that that falls into. One, what are the activities that you're trying to prevent? So is it that I'm trying to stop a person from soliciting the clients and employees? Is it that I'm trying to stop them from doing that and I'm trying to stop them from actually going to work for a competing uh, employer? Second then is what is the geographical element of that? So where in what geographic space does the restraint apply? And the third aspect, of course, then is the duration of that restraint. So... They're the sort of main aspects we often see disputes around these at the common law. But why we're sort of talking about them today is there's been some noise made by, yeah, that's right, sorry, the ACCC, the Productivity Commission and the federal government that sort of are starting to look at, well, these have started to really appear more so than we have really ever seen before. Yeah, very you know, common now. That's right. Stats sort of showing that they're in employment contracts for employees that we didn't traditionally no. see them in. Ships from sort of, you know, what was once sort of the, the realm only of your senior-level executives, so your sort of really senior-level employees in a business are starting to sort of appear all over the place for yeah. sort of employees of, you know, all the way down More to sort junior of,
0: employees.
1: That's right, you know, like... I've it,
0: seen it in, like, some admin contracts.
1: That's right, yeah. You know, individuals who can't realistically actually damage or influence yeah. your business. Yeah. And it sort of demonstrates that there's a little bit, I think, a bit of a shift, Nina, in the way that these are being used because the concept of a post-employment restraint is it comes back to that legitimate interest, you yeah. know. It's designed as a lawful mechanism for an employer to seek to protect its goodwill and its business and and the aspects of its business that are susceptible to being damaged if a person was to be able to be engaging with those elements free of any restraint. Yeah. But where employers are starting to sort of now use that in those sorts of employment arrangements where that person could never realistically do that. It's starting to sort of begin to be more into that really concerning element of that anti-competitiveness.
0: Yeah, we are definitely seeing more employers just slap it in every contract, Mm. despite knowing it's not enforceable. Mm. And I think the concerning thing, which I think underpins what the ACCC is saying and the government is saying, is the fact that while employers know that, The clauses they're putting in aren't enforceable against, say, like, you know, a really junior receptionist who has no access to confidential Mm. information and IP. That employee has no idea. It's not enforceable. And that in itself is a deterrent from them going out to see other work Mm. and things like that, which is fine if, say, it was just a couple, but it's happening many businesses mm. and across many industries, and there's a real risk of it stifling competition.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, interesting stats. Uh, a research paper sort of recently put out here with the Australian context. There's lots of research about this in the US. Yeah, in particular which they are
0: considering. That's
1: right. Well, this is sort of partly driven um, these more recent discussions. Yeah. But one in five Australian workers, they say, are captured by
0: so post-employment structures, which is crazy,
1: because obviously not one in five employees are Senior level yeah. or senior-level management level employees, but you know this deterrent point, this understanding from employees that they don't know that it's unenforceable or not. Where it comes into is this sort of the shift now into the sort of second consideration about what a post-employment restraint's doing, and that's really this argument that they actually stifle uh, labour productivity mm. and the competition for labour because. If employees are being subject to these clauses without a knowledge that they're not enforceable, that can deter them through fear of potential um, uh, reprise by their employers from actually going to seek other work as well. So what we've seen is the federal government, they've not adopted a particular position on this as yet, but they have asked the ACCC uh, and the Productivity Commission to look at, well, are post-employment restraints actually something that are stifling competition and productivity, Mm. and if they are, then, well, what is it that needs to happen to prevent that from occurring? And, you know, we've seen that the Labor government has been willing to be proactive in the employment and industrial space. Could we see a regime come in similar to your unfair contract terms regime that applies in uh, your consumer law space around these in relation to employment contracts? They've done it with the fixed-term contracts.
0: Yeah. Um, I think could it's it be? very likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: it'll be very interesting to see what the C and the Productivity Commission say. They've not taken a position on it as yet, just no. as the government has. But I wouldn't be surprised if what we've seen from this um, research report in that context, that they might say, hey, this actually is stifling productivity. It is stifling labour competitiveness, especially where unemployment remains so low and that there is a need for regulation on this at a federal level, which would be huge, really, and I suspect would go far beyond simply um, the New South Wales restraint of trade Act, which is currently the only legislative instrument that applies to these across Australia.
0: But really, knowing that that might come and probably is more likely to come, it's just a reminder to go back and look at your contracts. Like, if you have any kind of restraints have a look and see is it reasonable, all those things that Matt went through, you know, the timing, the area, you know, what is legitimate interest, please make sure that they are reasonable and everything is properly defined. That's probably the biggest Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Make like, sure it's cascading yeah. in terms
1: of the durations and of the geographic
0: area. I think the biggest one I always see is when they're talking about competitive businesses, not defining what constitutes a competitor, Mm. if you're too broad, it will automatically be deemed unenforceable.
1: Yeah, that's right. You don't want to leave it to the have to be giving evidence to the court about what is a competitor. Yeah. If they're looking at just the drafting of that um, that clause in particular, and also making sure that the competitors are legitimate. Um, yes. you know, don't just include businesses that all of these things are relevant. Yeah. The other sort of tidbit I think of advice to give would be look, don't just use a one size fits all no, restraint yes, as well. Do that. You know, even if you get a really good one drafted, for example, by us, which is high quality. <laughs> and is, uh, you know, tried and tested in the courts, it's going to be relevant to the individual employee and contextualised always. So I think our real main takeaway is, look, watch this space Mm. because I think we're going to increasingly see that there's going to be some more regulation about this as these reports come out. I reckon it's high chances
0: because this government has shown that they're all about prioritising the employee, like with all the anti-pay secrecy all the stuff with the independent contractors and stuff like that, they want to put things in place where no one's being taken advantage of. Yeah, and that's so right. I that's think right. more than likely we are going to see these changes. Yeah, come
1: yeah. Could we see an exclusion for particular people above, for example, the high income threshold? I
0: think that's probably that's going to be the, the way easiest to make mechanism, yeah. I
1: think, that would then really go back to what we talked yeah. about that traditional conception of this, which mm. is okay, well, restraints are for actually individuals who have a capacity to, without restraint, yeah. negatively impact your business, not. Your admin staff yeah. and you, you're sort of more your staff. Yeah,
0: should just do the submissions for the government, Matt. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, I'd like that government contract money, so send it my way, Elbow. All right. <laughs> On to the,
0: uh, <laughs> the case say I think it's
1: your turn. All to right. Stay right.
0: So okay. Joe was the GM of Talk to Us call centres. TTUCC. He earned $125,000 per annum plus super. TTUCC was taken over by King Call Centre's KCC. KCC made it known to Joe that his role was required and his contract would continue to apply. However, Joe was part of the executive group in TTUCC and was subject to a REM policy that incentivised the executive team of TTUCC. It delivered a discretionary bonus to Joe each year of around $30,000 after tax. When KCC took over the executive, was abandoned. Joe was offered a job with Cool Call Centres, CCC, gosh, Andrew, mm-hmm. for $160,000 per annum plus super and a role on the executive with a potential executive bonus. In the week, he was advised by the HR manager of KCC that the executive his role and benefits would be removed. He sent a letter saying he accepted their repudiation and would be leaving within the notice period. Between the time of him becoming aware and notifying acceptance of repudiation, he received his monthly pay. KCC pointed out he was restrained from working for any other competitor, all listed, and were genuine competitors, including CCC, for a period of 12 months. The lawyers for KCC sought undertakings and threatened an injunction. The lawyers for Joe responded, they had, A, they had repudiated his contract, he had accepted it, and therefore the restraints were not enforceable. B, his role at TTUCC was entirely administrative. He had no knowledge of how the business made money, no client lease, or other confidential information. It was not a reasonable restraint. C, the period was not a cascading provision and 12 months for such a low paid employee with limited responsibilities was unreasonable. D, they would give undertakings only about confidential information if they could identify what it was. Okay, so was it wasn't reasonable to restrain Joe in any way?
1: Yeah, well, look, I mean, a broad question. Yes, it is reasonable to seek to impose a post-employment restraint on especially someone the level of seniority of a, um, you know, of a general manager.
0: Yeah, he definitely had access to
1: confidential information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is a, and we're told that obviously there is a a part of that. executive, executive. someone who is the general manager very clearly is going to have, yeah, as as you've seen, exposure to the confidential information, the operational know-how, the intellectual property, all of that, you know, is going to be within the remit of the general manager. So to seek to impose the restraint... You know, yes, absolutely. Now, breaking it down into its composite parts, that's the question of the, the argument about the reasonableness.
0: So then we go into was the period reasonable, which was 12 months. They that's had right. no cascading, it was mm, just 12
1: months. That's right. That's right. So, look, 12 months, when we look at the sort of history of when these have been found to be enforceable, is on the longer end mm. of what is considered to be reasonable. And there's lots of factors here that we don't know which would be relevant to this consideration. Uh, one is how long was Joe employed for across the period yep. of both employers if it was a short period, it's 12 months too long. Yeah. We don't know, we don't have any evidence here about what uh, KCC would lead about how long they might need actually to, to legitimately protect, protect, those protect those interests. So, yeah. for example, you know, if it's that we need three months and so that's as much as we can show to you know, re-establish those client relationships with the extra nine months, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so, look, I think... And the
0: incentive is not the information. That's right, well. yes,
1: exactly, yeah. exactly. So... Twelve months, I think is probably likely the challenge. And again, because it's not cascading, mm, they've gone months. all in on that twelve yeah. months. So there's a real chance that this could be found to be unreasonable. Because
0: without the cascading provision um, clause in there, and you're not in New South Wales, then it can't be read down. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So did KC repudiate Joe's contract?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they changed the terms and conditions of his employment unilaterally. You know, yeah, listen. that's right. I mean, they demonstrated, they've evinced an, inte- yeah. an unwillingness, <laughs> an unwillingness to be bound by the terms and conditions of the yeah. contract as agreed. You know, I mean, it's sort of one of the more clear-cut yeah. examples of a repudiation that we deal with. Really, don't ever unilaterally yeah. change and things thing. like that. I mean, yeah. that's the real simple, simple solution to this. So, yes, yes, is the short yeah. answer.
0: Could Joe accept the repudiation, and did that mean the restraint was void as a matter of law? Yes. Well, he did accept the repudiation. Mm. So remember with repudiation, once someone is repudiated, you need to accept it straight away. If you do anything to show that you're allowing or condoning the repudiation to stand, then you cannot accept it. And it's got to be, you've got to act fast, but if you do accept the repudiation, then the restraints are void.
1: That's right, yeah. We've got lots of case law that talks about, you know, that gives examples of almost similar situations Mm. to this where employers repudiated the contract because it's unilaterally changed the terms and conditions and normally of senior level and executive level and employees and then turns around and tries to enforce the restraint and the court simply said, you voided this contract. So you can't expect to have the benefits of it in those circumstances.
0: Yep. And Was the acceptance of his monthly pay a waiver of his entitlement to accept the repudiation?
1: This one was tricky. Yeah, this one's a real classic Andrew special. So Nina and I did spend some time having a chat about this one beforehand. Look, it comes to the question of the repudiation. So when the Repudiatory Act occurs, the other party, the the repudiatee, has to make a, a decision about what happens, as Nina has alluded to. You can elect to keep the employment contract on foot and reserve rights in respect of the repudiation potentially to, see, uh, to bring a claim for a breach of contract or you can elect to bring it to an end. Now, the monthly pay, it's part of the terms and conditions of the contract at the time that it was on foot before. So it's they haven't the,
0: added more money. That's yet. right. The
1: repudiation, the repudiatory conduct has occurred, then the payment's been made, then the employees brought it to an end. We think that that timing, it's not necessarily an overt act that suggests that they've made an election about yeah. the repudiation because it's just a continuation of the terms. So our view is Yeah, no. and I
0: think it yeah. also depends on, like, the timing. So if, say, mm. they made the offer and the pay came back later that day because that's mm. just how it comes, I think the court would be like, the fact that he's the next day said mm. I accept your repudiation, that's not going to change. Mm. But if he had say they've told him and then he's waited several days and then he's gone to his pay and then he does it, then I think that would change things yeah, a little Yeah, absolutely,
1: bit more. absolutely. So right. I mean, more yeah. specifics would be needed yeah. to really make a call on this. But, again, time is of the essence when mm-hmm. it comes to repudiation. Well, well thanks wow. so much, everyone, again this week. Yeah. we got the hat trick three weeks in a row for Nina and I next week as well, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yep. That's right. Excellent. So please, yeah, drop yeah. us a like, follow all yeah, those things. Up. Yeah, there you go. And we'll see you next week.
0: Bye.